Hello again. Will you join me in Acts chapter 8 as we continue our story in the book of Acts of how the good news of Jesus goes to everyone, everywhere. And boy, does the good news go to some surprising places and people tonight in Acts chapter 8. Now, I want to sit with this question. What happens when crisis sends us into new territory? Ah, that's why I asked you that question earlier. What happens when crisis sends us into new territory? The truth is, in 2020, in the midst of all this disruption, we are living our answers. We have experienced, collectively, the crisis, and now we are moving into new territory. I mean, think about it. You know this. Our jobs, or lack thereof, new territory. Our social lives, or lack thereof, into new territory. Our school, new territory. Our gatherings at church and otherwise, new territory. New, 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 new. This is what we're living. But fear not. God's people have always had to navigate new territory. And while they have had different experiences in different times, in different places, and even different crises... They have the same choice as we do, to either bail out or lean in. And over time, remarkably, when they had every excuse to bail out, they chose to lean into God's power, presence, and life, daring to believe that there is still life on the other side of crisis. There is still, in the midst of our discomfort and difficulty, the very presence of God within us, and working through us, in us, around us. So we have a lot to learn tonight of how people experienced a crisis, got sent into new territory, and leaned into the power of presence of God. They had every excuse to bail out. Last week we looked at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and an intense persecution broke out. And they chose to lean in and navigate new territory. And it sent them to new places, places they never wanted to go, to new people, people they never wanted to talk to. And then we encounter a person named Simon who grapples with a new perspective. Those are the three movements of our story this evening in Acts chapter 8. Let's get into it, how crisis moves us into new territory, and how we might choose to lean in just like they did. Join me in Acts chapter 8. We're going to pick up right on the heels of our story last week, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. That's Stephen. And on that day... A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That's the region surrounding that city. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. I prefer the translation was wreaking havoc on the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Let's pause there and see how this crisis moved them to new places, even places they never wanted to go. 
So what we just read was this. Saul moves from just the observer to a persecutor. And this sets the stage for a dramatic encounter that we'll see later on in our story. Then we see the church is scattered from Jerusalem to that region of Judea and Samaria. And let me tell you, they were not thrilled about going into Samaria. We'll talk about that more in a bit. But it's not just a spiritual shift that this early church has undertaken to see how Jesus is where the story of God's people Israel was headed all along. They also now have to make a geographical shift outside the center of what they've known their whole lives. They're scattered. And of course, the reason for this, the inciting incident in our story, is that Stephen was serving like Jesus, living like Jesus, healing like Jesus, and even dying like Jesus, forgiving his murderers and commending himself to God. Because Stephen embodied what a king and a kingdom worth living and dying for looks like. So they mourn for him deeply, and we are reminded right now today that the story of Jesus that we are believing, telling, and embodying is a powerful critique of an alternative to the powers of the world that are using violence and fear and division to elevate themselves over and above God. When they sought to silence this movement, cease this movement, stop this person, Stephen, when they think that they are squashing it and the church scatters, we actually see there's life on the other side of this crisis. Did you see what happened in verse 4? Even though they were scattered, picking up, packing up, going where they need not ever have gone, were it not for this crisis, they still began to preach and teach the story. And it reminds us that even in the midst of persecution, thousands of brothers and sisters presently are living under continual suspicion, opposition, humiliation, and danger. And yet they remain committed to not only giving their lives to Jesus and the story of his life, death, and resurrection, they're still committed to going out and inviting others in. Boy, in the midst of continual opposition. In the midst of their going, they're still embodying and sharing that message. Why? Because they know what Stephen knew and what his brothers and sisters so long ago knew, that this is a story worth living and even dying for. We, dear brothers and sisters, have much to learn from our brothers and sisters scattered and facing opposition, just like they did in Acts chapter 8. You see, this crisis disrupted their lives, but it did not destroy their purpose. Ooh, I know that sounds like a preacher line, but you gotta let me have it. I'm a preacher, and that's what I see. We see that scattered becomes sent when we follow the lead of the Spirit into new places we never expected to go. This crisis disrupted their lives. It made it difficult, but it did not destroy their purpose. There's life on the other side of it when they entered into these new places. How many of you have known someone that has 
uh, struggling with this uh, diagnosis and this illness, and yet there's just this joy, this peace, this presence that radiates out of them where they say, this is not going to steal the life out of me, even if it's doing so physically. How many of you have seen uh, a massive shift and disruption in job and family and struggle, and yet there's still something about them that chooses to lean into the power and presence of God that may not magically fix the situation like this, but there's something that's bigger holding them, forming them, shaping them. Even this week, we were talking to one of our leaders in a meeting, and she was talking about how she's just going through it. Like so many of you all, every day is a continual crisis that's having to send you into new territory. And she was saying, you know, I can't quite make sense of all of it in the present tense, but I know enough now that even if I can't see the results of what will be, I'm trusting that though it's painful, in the present tense, God is forming me, using me, growing me. She said it's kind of like working out. It's so hard to imagine the end game, the end result, to see your goals through. And even though now in the present tense, it's painful, it's hard, it's difficult, I'm going to trust that in this difficulty, God's still working, God's still forming, it's still training me, developing me, and though I may not see the results then, I can trust God today. You see, we should expect discomfort. We are new territory people. We always have been. Follow Jesus long enough, he's going to send you into places you didn't want to go on your own. But we also should trust God's goodness no matter what. That's why I love Psalm 23 and try to pray it, remember it, sit with it every day. Because it reminds me that he is the shepherd that not only leads us through green pastures and still waters, but even through the valley of the shadow of death. There is a long biblical tradition that says, even though things are bad, even though what man meant for evil, God is still working through it, bending around it, working towards good. God is working in all things for his glory and our good. This is the biblical witness in new territory. So this wicked and difficult, uncomfortable scattering still becomes the fulfillment of Jesus's sending message. You remember Acts 1.8? He tells his followers, you will be my witnesses, my sent ones, to tell this story to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Now, they're scattered to the place where Jesus went and where Jesus sent. Even though the means were painful and it was a crisis and they didn't want to go, God is still at work within it. And even though it was their decisions of Saul and others to persecute and try to squash them, God was at work in, around, under, bending what was evil to his good and glory. That's the biblical theme that we can lean into and hold on to. That scattered can become sent. Crisis cannot overshadow your purpose. Disruption cannot destroy what God is up to. 
when we lean in to him. That's the first thing I wanted to see you. Even when God sends you to that place you don't want to go, wherever that Samaria is, he's still working and it won't disrupt his ultimate good. Now, let's continue in our story, picking it up in verse 5 as we're reintroduced to our man, Philip. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Obviously, right? Philip was one of the seven chosen with Stephen in Acts chapter 6 that were the servant leaders of the church, the deacons. They served like Jesus. They performed miracles like Jesus. They embodied the life of Jesus wherever they went. And it rocked this city in Samaria. This crisis sent him not only to the place, but to a people. And he's liberating them. He's delivering them from oppression and evil and illness. We're reintroduced to this guy who is interacting with people that he probably never had interacted with before. You see, Jews in those days would avoid Samaria. Samaria was the center of the sandwich. The bread was Galilee and Judea, approved nice places with God-fearing, approved Jews in Jesus' day. But Samaria was the ham in the middle of that sandwich, that middle piece that nobody really had a taste for. Now, when you get down to brass tacks, the Samaritans uh, loved Moses' law, believed Israel's God, and they were longing for a Messiah. But they disagreed on a lot of the particulars. You see this kind of interplay in John chapter 4 when Jesus meets a Samaritan woman. And I think following in Jesus' example, Philip, who is scattered and sent, is like, well, if Jesus could talk to Samaritans, maybe I should. If Jesus told stories about a good Samaritan, maybe there are good Samaritans. And I just gotta believe that Philip enters in to this place to talk with people he never would have interacted with before. But here's the deal. When you follow Jesus long enough, you're going to start rubbing elbows with the people that Jesus would rub elbows with. You know, the sinners and tax collectors, the poor, the needy, the sick, the left out, the least, the marginalized. And I don't know, maybe Jesus would even interact with people on the different end of the political spectrum from you. You know, even those people. Whoever your Samaritan is... Jesus, if you follow him and lean into him long enough, might lead you to new people. Because ultimately, Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. He's moved those lines so far out to the margins that everyone we encounter is no longer an enemy to be feared, but a neighbor to be loved. It's interesting that when Jesus was carousing with all these wrong kinds of people, 
they called him a Samaritan, like it was a derogatory term. They called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but even the word Samaritan became an insult. But here's the invitation for us. These people we're seeing in Acts chapter 8 are no longer people to be denigrated and avoided, but to be liberated and included. Philip followed the leading of the Spirit, and what we saw is how them becomes us when we follow the Spirit's ever-expanding circles of who is reconciled into the reign of God. Persecution erupts and scatters me to Samaria? Well, guess I'll interact with these brand new people because the reign of God must even be for them. If Jesus went there before and sent us there now, and this crisis is sending us into this new territory, let me lean into his example and his power and proclaim the reign of God even now. These Samaritans that Philip had talked to were liberated, and they eventually become baptized and welcomed into the family. Why? Because crisis sent Philip into new territory and he started to interact with new people to maybe, just maybe, see them as human. Sarah Jackson is a woman who wrote this book that Amy read and loved and it's called The House That Love Built. This book came out recently and it's the story of how she began to embrace those that she never really thought about. That is until she went to a church trip on the border of Arizona and Mexico. And in this trip, she found her way uh, to a migrant camp within Mexico where she met a man named Augustin. She says that he sounded like a U.S. citizen, she, that he spoke like a U.S. citizen, he even looked like a U.S. citizen. And that's because... He spent his whole life in the U.S. In fact, he was born there, or he wasn't born there. He grew up there. He even married a U.S. citizen, but that didn't automatically make him a citizen. He became a father, and one day he was going to pick up his children from school, and he got pulled over for driving under the speed limit. And when he was pulled over, he became arrested. And after he was arrested, he got deported. And all of a sudden, as she's hearing his story, it begins to humanize this person that she would have once considered an alien or illegal. And all of a sudden, she realized that those terms may not have captured the full picture of this person and his story. And it was the first time she really sat and listened it was the first time she sat with someone in a migrant facility, and it was the first of many hundreds more. You see, it was a crisis for her to be confronted with this new people, and it moved her into a new territory that would eventually cause her to open up her 600-square-foot apartment to host immigrants coming out of detention facilities in Denver. Eventually, that would lead her to start an organization that would procure a three-bed, two-bath house with a basement converted to host even more 
immigrant visitors and guests and families. And eventually, as of the time of this book's writing, they would welcome over 3,000 immigrants from 73 different nations in what is now known as the Casa de Paz, the House of Peace. Now, I need you to understand that when Sarah Jackson did this, she was a young, single woman, wasn't rich, didn't have a huge house, and she actually couldn't speak Spanish or Arabic or French or any other language but English. But what she was, was open to new people in the new territory that the Spirit was inviting her to. What might it look like in our story if we had that kind of openness? An openness to the Spirit of God and an openness to our neighbor. What might that look like in the new territory today? Hmm. I love that story and I would commend this book to you. It's pretty powerful. Now, let's continue our story in Acts. Not only uh, is Philip sent to a new place and new people, we're going to encounter a man named Simon who's going to be confronted with a new perspective. Now, this is a lengthy passage of this story, but I just want to focus and end our time on the meat of it and to see how God might be inviting you and I into a new perspective as well. So let's pick up our story, meeting our man, Simon. Verse 9. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now Simon himself believed and was baptized. And then he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now just real quick there, Simon, who is kind of the OG most interesting man in this town of Samaria, recognizes Philip and a greater power than he was trafficking in. And so instead of people following Simon and being amazed at Simon, Simon begins to follow Philip and the people are amazed at Philip. And not just Philip, but the power beyond him in the name of Jesus. And they give their lives to the story and power of Jesus. And God is at work in this new territory. Pick it back up, verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This is interesting because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
Y'all ready for it? Verse 20. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Ouch! Verse 23. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they, heard, ha, excuse me, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Let's wind down with two big questions. The first big question is, why no priority shipping on the Holy Spirit with these new Samaritan believers? Did you catch that interesting thing around verses 16 and 17? It looked a lot different from Acts chapter 2 when they were, whom many of them, enabled, empowered, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. And yet here, there's a little bit of the delay. They received the Word of God and gave their lives to Jesus. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. But there wasn't this evidence, this indwelling sense that the Holy Spirit became resident in their lives until Peter and John came and laid hands on them. I think the first thing I should note with this question is that we're going to find in the book of Acts that the uncontrollable Spirit of God that blows where He will resists easy formulas or one-size-fits-all empowerment. I mean, just think about this in our own life. We all have many different callings and gifts and relationships with the Spirit. But here's the deal. The uncontrollable Spirit of God is not a one-size-fits-all kind of power. It's also not a power that you can purchase or manipulate for your own good. But I'm kind of digressing into my second question. Perhaps Willie James Jennings can help offer insight as to why this delay in the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. The delay of the Spirit was not for a defect of faith or of life for the Samaritans. Could it be that God waited for Peter and John so that they could watch the intimate event? Here and now, these disciples, especially Peter, will see a love that extends into the world. They will watch as God stretches forth divine desire over the Samaritans. They must see again the Spirit descend and sense afresh the divine embrace of flesh. Disciples of Jesus must be convinced not only of God's love for the world, but also God's desire for people, especially peoples we have been taught not to desire. Friends, God is moving us to new places and new people. And if it's good enough for him, it ought be good enough for us. Those who have ears to hear, hear. Now, our second question with this text we just read. 
Why the heat from Peter towards Simon? I mean, do we sympathize with Simon a little bit? Don't we sympathize with the man who embraced the word and was baptized and was being discipled by Philip and receiving this thing joyfully? Why the heat, Peter? Why such a difficult rebuke? I think the answer uh, I kind of tipped my hand earlier is because Luke, who wrote this story down, wants us to know that the gift of God is to be received and not purchased. I think that Simon had something still lingering within his heart as someone who knew power and chased power and exerted power. There was still something within him that wanted that control himself. I think there's that impulse when crisis hits, when we're confronted with new territory, new information, new perspectives. There's this desire to go back to what's known, and we seek to control even that which is uncontrollable. Think about this pandemic. Think about how we are so desperate to get back to some semblance of normalcy and control. Think about even in a scarier, darker sense, so many spiritual gurus or celebrity pastors or televangelists or those with the ear of the powerful that, like Simon, were somebody great. Think about how many of them have sought to hold on to control the spiritual sway and power to use and manipulate for their own clout. Maybe that's what's going on when Simon offered up a few bucks to say, can I have what she's having? Can I exert my own power and control over these people? I think the heat of the rebuke is a mix of all of those things, but to put it succinctly with our third and final big idea, control becomes surrender. When we release our pride and receive God's life. You see, the way that we learned from Jesus is that the greatest among you will be the least and a servant of all. You see, Jesus embodied and emulated the one who had every right to control and lord all of this power over people On the final night he spent with his followers, he performed the lowest of low task of washing feet. And you might remember a few messages ago when we were introduced to Philip and Stephen as servant leaders and deacons that we said, you'll never outgrow that calling to serve others. So this, for Simon or for Peter, or John, or Philip, or Stephen, the next step is always the same, and it's humility and surrender. Surrendering control that you finally admit that I'm not in control. I'm not the end-all, be-all. Look around. Admit it. And you'll find freedom. You see, Control becomes surrender. When we release our pride and receive God's life, when we shift our focus, shift our perspective, when crisis hits, and it reminds us that we are not as strong and in control as we thought we were. So be free 
to lean into God's power, God's spirit, God's presence, and let him handle it. In our church, we often say to do what you can and let God do what you can't. And when you live in that kind of rhythm, in that new territory, you'll find the difference pretty quick. And what you find on the other side is life and freedom. Even though crises seek to destroy us, to disrupt us, to bring us discomfort, would you find that scattered becomes sent when we follow the lead of the Spirit into new places we never expected to go? Would you find that them becomes us when we follow the Spirit's ever-expanding circles of who is reconciled into the reign of God? And finally, would we let control become surrender when we release our pride and receive God's life because the Holy Spirit is a gift to receive, not a tool to use to manipulate others. Find yourself free in the loving embrace of God.